I've found over the years that, that Emily Dickinson's poetry speaks to almost anyone, everyone. It's very, very unusual that way. But people have regarded her as an eccentric, which she is, and as a kind of almost a phobic, shy person who lived in Western Massachusetts sometime in her 20s, decided not only never to go to another city, never to go to Boston anymore, but never to go out of the house. I will not cross my father's ground for any house or town, she told Thomas Wentworth Higginson. So we see her as kind of alone and cut off from the world. And what this friendship does, and, and what I think I hope it does, is suggest the ways in which she was really very much part of the world, that she didn't have to go out to know what was going on, that she had a very active, creative, imaginative, and in a certain way, social life. That was Brenda Wineapple. She's the author of the book, White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself, it cannot see distinctly, and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed, and had you leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. That's how Emily Dickinson begins her first letter to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. The year was 1862. The 38-year-old Higginson was a prominent cultural critic and activist. Emily Dickinson was 31, an unknown if prolific poet and a recluse. Yet an improbable and intense friendship began. Dickinson reached out to Higginson, who responded to the genius he saw in her work. Their correspondence would continue for the next quarter century, with Dickinson sending Higginson almost 100 of her poems. After her death, Higginson became a co-editor of Dickinson's work and arranged for its publication. Drawing on 25 years' worth of Dickinson's letters, Brenda Wineapple recreates this extraordinary friendship in her book, White Heat, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. White Heat combines biography, literary criticism, and history. The result is a book that allows us to see Dickinson and her poems through the eyes of a contemporary. We see her as a person within the context of her times. A genius, to be sure, but more savvy than one might imagine. While Higginson emerges as a radical thinker, astute critic, and wise friend. I spoke with Brenda Wineapple in New York City last year and began our conversation by asking her why the title, White Heat. Well, I'm glad you asked that. It's one of the things I'm fondest of, actually, in the book. The title comes from a poem. The line of the poem begins, Dare You See a Soul at the White Heat. It's one of the poems that Emily Dickinson sent to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and it's a very difficult, very wonderful poem, and I take it to be about the creative process. When you work at a white heat, you are outside of yourself. You are transported by something. 
you are suddenly somewhere else. And that could be writing poetry. That could happen when you're playing a sport. It could happen when you're agitating politically, as Thomas Wentworth Higginson did. So dare you see a soul at the white heat. It's also a challenge. Can you take me on, in a sense, she's asking him. Also, I like the title in that sense, or I'm using it because a white heat is a little different from a red heat. And this was a friendship, and it had a kind of almost erotic component, but certainly never going to be consummated. It was a flirtation. It's a white heat as opposed to a red heat. And also, the white refers implicitly to white and black. Thomas Wentworth Higginson was a radical abolitionist. Thomas Wentworth Higginson, many listeners will not know who he is. Right. <laughs> so explain explain his background to yes, us. Um, he's been forgotten, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. He is known in certain circles as the editor uh, to whom Dickinson sent her poetry, but he didn't really get it, didn't understand it, and he was uh, almost coerced into publishing it after her death. That is a misconception, too. He was a very unusual man. He was, as I said, a radical abolitionist who believed in equal rights for women, for blacks, for everyone. He seemed to be what I consider on the right side of every political issue uh, that there was in the 19th century, um, and willing to put his life on the line for it. He backed John Brown. He ran guns to Kansas. He, When he was a minister, he preached abolition and lost his job in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Um, and he was a nature writer as well. So he's a very unusual figure, and as I said, very well known in his time. His name and his doings were in the newspaper quite a bit. Dickinson would have known who he was. Do we know why she sent poems to him? The best guess is that he had written an article in the Atlantic Monthly. It's the same Atlantic Monthly that's with us today. Bless its heart. Yeah, good, I know. And he he, he was writing for them. He was one of the early contributors, and he wrote an essay called Letter to a Young Contributor. And what he was doing was saying, well, if you want to get published in the Atlantic Monthly, this is what you do. You use white paper and black pens. And beside the practical advice, he was also uh, talking about writing and the process of writing and writing really in a sense at the white heat. And uh, Dickinson had been reading all of his Atlantic essays, and this one seemed to spur her to write him a letter out of the blue and sent him four poems. How did he respond to the poems? He responded pretty well. I mean, it's amazing. when you, He said he got a passel of mail after that article um, and lots of poetry, but he responded to Dickinson right away. He was intrigued by what she had sent him, and that began a correspondence that lasted her entire life, which was 24 more years. So whatever he responded, we don't have the exact letter, it was enough to have her write back pretty quickly. He was intrigued. He liked the poetry. He said years later that he couldn't help making a few little suggestions. She ignored him, and the rest became a very, I think, important friendship to both of them. Clearly, his opinion mattered to her. Yes, I think it did. I think she was going to follow her own instincts anyway. She, I think, knew she had a a very unusual voice, but his opinion mattered to her, and I think uh, his connection to the world and, and his radicalism, in a sense, because she was a radical, too, not politically, but certainly in terms of literary style and what she was doing. And his sensibility in that, in that way, I think, was very important to her, and vice versa. Was Emily Dickinson aware of her own talent? 
I, you know, one can never know. Um, yeah. My get best guess is yes, I think she was. I mean, I think in some sense one of the intriguing questions about Dickinson is why did she not choose to publish? Uh, she had the opportunity. And in, in some respects, Higginson's often been blamed. Why didn't he help her publish? But she refused opportunities all over the place. Her family was very connected, well-connected to, say, the Springfield Republican. Those days, newspapers had poetry often on the front page. So she could have published, and she didn't want to, but she sent her poems to friends like Higginson, whom she trusted, and members of her family. And it was very clear that her poetry was important to her and that she knew it was unusual. And in a sense, by not publishing, she was also making a statement, and she became more well-known, ironically, because people knew she was a poet, but one that held back. It's certainly not anything that we understand in the 21st century, and with so many people wanting instant fame and celebrity, and of course, if you're writing, you assume you're not putting it in your draw and forgetting about it, you want to communicate. But she did. What would these two write to each other about? Because much of their friendship was carried out through correspondence. Yes, absolutely. Because we have her correspondence to him. She would write about writing. She would write about what she was reading. She would write in a sense about what she was feeling. She would write about what she thought he might be feeling. For example, he had a wife at the time, his first wife, who was an invalid. And Dickinson was very sensitive to that. And he would try to answer her knowing that she was such an unusual person and the wrong answer might cause her not to respond. So it was a kind of delicate friendship in that way. Often she wrote to him saying, why don't you come visit me? And he would say, why don't you come to Boston? <laughs> All ladies do. And she would say, no, no, I'm not coming to Boston. But he did visit her twice. And the records of that visit and the poems she sent to him, almost a 100, and the letters give us a real insight into Dickinson that we wouldn't have if there had been no friendship. What insight? What do we see that we wouldn't have seen without that friendship? Well, for example, that visit. You know, he was the uh, first and perhaps only person from the outside. And what I mean by that is outside the family, outside the circle of friends in Amherst, who was really allowed to come to the Dickinson homestead in Amherst to pull the bell and to be ushered in by Emily Dickinson. These are two strangers, remember. They've only known each other through correspondence, pen pals, email, whatever. And to confront this woman who came to him dressed in white and gave him a day lily and said, how long will you stay? He was so taken and they had such an intense conversation that afterwards he went back to the Amherst Inn where he was staying and he wrote down almost everything she said. So we almost have a transcript of Dickinson speaking, which is remarkable. Then he also wrote to his wife describing the encounter. So it's as close we get to firsthand experience of this very reclusive hermetic poet, and it's really marvelous that way. And yet he also said, and I'm quoting him now, mm -hmm. he said he had never met anyone, quote, who yes. drained my nerve power so much, I know that unquote. Quote. Yeah, sure. She was intense. 
the rest of that quote says, I never met anyone who drained my nerve power so much. I'm glad not to live near her. You know, and in a sense, you could see why, because she was, she was exhausting. She was so, as I said, intense, so involved in what she was doing, so demanding emotionally and intellectually that he probably left exhausted. He came back the next day, but you can see why he was saying um, she was quite charged. She was really quite charged with life, with poetry, uh, probably with sexuality, too, and he better get home. Well, let's talk about the erotic undertone between these two. And I think that's certainly part of what you talk about in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We see, as you asked about the preconceptions of Dickinson before, we see her as really kind of asexual, apolitical, ahistorical sort of locked in this homestead as if it's a dungeon or, you know, she's a a kind of mad woman in the attic, to, you know, use that phrase. And she's not at all. In fact, the first letters to Higginson was enormously flirtatious. When I first told my husband about it, told him how she had a little card with her name on it in an envelope, within an envelope, because she didn't sign the letter, he said... Higginson was a dead man, that that it was such incredible flirtatious bait. So she was very coquettish, and Higginson, he responded to that. He was a very good-looking man. He liked the fact that the ladies and the gents were both attracted to him. As I said, he had a, a difficult marriage because his wife was an invalid. He was not home a lot. And here was this unusual poet sending him poetry that like the poem, Dare You See a Soul at the White Heat, is not only filled with life, uh, it's filled with passion. So that there is a real passionate connection between the two of them. I don't think they would have continued to write for 20, almost 25 years if there hadn't been that. How did that relationship evolve for 25 years? Well, it's interesting because it it started at a a pretty high note. It started intensely. I mean, uh, the first line of her first letter to him is, Are you too preoccupied to say if my verse is alive? You know, so that's really quite a, a daunting question. And he was preoccupied, but not too preoccupied. He must have found it alive. So as I said, it started fairly intensely. And I think right away Dickinson was sensing something about this man. And don't forget that she'd been reading his writings, so she had a sense also of his style, of his of his interests, of his commitments, of his unusual qualities. So it started, as I said, in a very intimate way. He started asking her questions, you know, do you go out, who are your friends, what are you reading? And she answered them. And she answered them... Uh, very openly uh, for Dickinson. You know, she said uh, she liked her dog better than most people because uh, he knew but did not tell. She said that she wasn't religious, but her family was. They worshipped an eclipse that they called Father. I mean, these are really quite intriguing statements, and they're also very revealing. And she talked about her need for writing poetry, And I think she offered him a kindness, too. So I think over time it became even more intimate in ways I think we've lost um, the ability to understand. You know, in some ways it reminds me of friendships between Victorian women, Mm. which took place through a lot of correspondence as well. And there's a passion there that 
But at the same time, it doesn't mean that there was a physical relationship, right. but it doesn't necessarily mean that there, wasn't. that there wasn't. Right. And and in a sense, we can't go behind that door in right. a way. And in a way, it's better that we don't. A Dickinson and Higginson, to a certain extent, are people who lived in words. They lived by words. Words were so important. And their words were passionate, you know, and that was a kind of consummation for them in a way. And, you know, as and in the very literal sense, Higginson was a loyal man. He was a married man, and Dickinson was a single woman. No wonder he didn't want to go to Amherst too much. But you're right. These letters are very, very passionate at that particular time, and um, it was a mode of expression that was uh, not inhibited, really, the ways maybe clothes inhibited people or certain social customs inhibited people. But I think they were freer in their letters. They're really rather remarkable in some ways. Is it hard translating those letters through 21st century eyes? Well, yeah. Or challenging. That's a better word. Yeah, because, you know, we've all had the experience of writing something to someone and having it misunderstood. Even the statement that Higginson made, you know, I never met anyone who drained my nerve power so much, and that's been typically uh, interpreted as she scares me and that there was a kind of weakness there. But I don't interpret it that way. I look at the correspondence. I look at the fact that she chose him and that she chose almost no one. And so I see that as a kind of intensity because I see what she's saying to him. And so, yeah, of course it's a challenge. But once we kind of change our perception or open up our understanding and say maybe Dickinson wasn't what we thought she was. She was something else. And maybe Higginson wasn't what we thought he was, and he is something else. Maybe we've misunderstood the letters, so here's another interpretation of it. So that's what I was able to do, and one never knows. Of course it's a challenge, and that's what's so much fun, because Dickinson's letters are really like poems. They're poems in a way. You know, it's interesting because in their lifetime, Higginson was the celebrity. Yes. Dickinson was the unknown. And now we're talking about Higginson because of his relationship with Dickinson, who is the great name. You know, when he knew that, he lived long enough to know that his star was setting. You know, he died in 1911, so here he had been... uh, uh, leader of the first regiment of black troops in the Civil War. I mean, it's, it's quite a different world. He's all the way in the 20th century. He wrote on New York New York City subways. He uh, he died the year Ronald Reagan was born. So we don't think of Dickinson in those terms, absolutely. And as I said, he he was fading, and so he's associated with that kind of late Victorian fussiness. But he is really largely responsible for her becoming the celebrity that she became. He promoted her quite a bit. He wrote an article when the book was coming out that he edited. He wanted the second volume to be less tampered with than the first. And he knew he wasn't a genius. He knew he wasn't a Hawthorne or a Dickinson or or whomever we might put in that category. He was good, but he, he didn't have that special quality that he saw in Dickinson, he saw in Thoreau, he, he actually liked these kind of um, reclusive people. And yeah, the tables have turned, because ever since people started reading Dickinson, which was in the 1890s, 
uh, she has been a mainstay, really, of American literary culture. So it's very interesting. And he's, you're right, he's gone. But he's partly gone because his politics were so radical, and that was very out of fashion by the turn of the century and until fairly recently. How did he end up being the editor of Emily Dickinson's poems? Well, after she died, uh, she left a sister uh, with whom she'd been living. Both Emily Dickinson and her sister were single women, and they lived in this homestead where they had grown up. And Lavinia, the sister, found a tremendous number of poems, and she wanted them published, and she knew enough to know that the best person for her to contact was Thomas Wentworth Higginson because he was so well-connected in the literary uh, world of Boston of the time. And she did, and she knew that Dickinson had been so fond of him. In fact, Dickinson had asked that he speak at her funeral, which he did. So Lavinia got in touch with Higginson and, and also another woman. It gets very complicated at this point who happened to be Emily Dickinson's brother's lover. And the two of them, Mabel Todd and Higginson, edited the poems. Mabel Todd because she had to transcribe them. Some of them were really on scraps of paper. And Higginson because, as I said, he had the literary connections and also you know, was considered uh, fairly astute literary mind and critic. So they did it. There's been a lot of controversy about the editing of Dickinson's poems. That's right. You know, the, the difficulty with Dickinson's poetry is that she didn't publish. And what, what that means is she didn't choose the so-called authoritative poem. In other words, this is the poem I want in the public. This is the finished version. And once she said, it is finished, can never be said of us. And that was true of her poetry. So her poetry is in a state of process. And she may have three or four versions of the same poem. So every editor has to make choices about which version to use. And in the 1890s, what Higginson was doing was, as he said, readying the public for her. Here was a man who fought against the status quo and knew people just really don't like things that are unusual. So he made the horrible error of giving the poems titles. Dickinson didn't use titles, taking some of the dashes out, putting them in commas. In other words, regularizing them for the public so that they would go down a little more smoothly. It's as if he sugarcoated them in a way to make them palatable. And he did, and that worked. But of course, by the 20th century, he's seen as a fool for doing that. What's forgotten is that he only did that as a means to an end. And then the second volume, he told Mabel Todd, he said, now that the public ear is open, let us alter as little as possible. And she really didn't want to. So it's a complicated story. And of course, he's the one who bore the brunt of being a silly man because Mabel Todd outlived him and, and she became a Dickinson promoter when people said, what happened? Why were these poems changed? But she said, oh, Thomas Higginson did it. <laughs> and they both did it in a sense. So that's what happened. But you know, even now, there are uh, many more editions uh, of her work and each editor has to make certain choices about which poems they're going to put in print. So each editor, in a sense, is tampering. You have to do it with Dickinson. It's like translating in a way. The translator is trying mm. to be close to the original writer's language and intent, but often translators, each one has a different coloration, you know, a different hue, a different outlook even that 
Um, or a different emphasis. Yeah, or a different emphasis, exactly, that influences the choice of which word one would use. And it's very similar in that way. And so we think now we're closer to whatever her intentions were. But those intentions, you know, are multiple and not finite at all. So it's very interesting. So each editor, as I said, faces that problem as a translator would. Brenda, what brought you to this story? Hmm. Well, you know, every writer wants to write about Emily Dickinson, and uh, she's the most elusive person. And, uh, I, you know, there are biographies out there. The Richard Sewell's a wonderful biography. I knew I couldn't do a biography of a person who's, who said the biography always flees the biographer, which is true. And I didn't want to write that. And I was always intrigued by this friendship. And I thought to myself, very simply, I thought, well, if Dickinson chose this man to be friends with, why don't we look at her choice and see what it was that she was up to? And once I did that, that really sort of opened a whole world to me. Tell me, did anything surprise you? Everything surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> She's a constant surprise. I mean, you know, you always say when you're looking at a poem, how did she think of that? Where did she get that image? I mean, it's so stunning, even today. So she's a constant surprise and a constant mystery. And he was an enormous surprise. I had no idea. A, a man of such deep, committed convictions. And as I said, on the really the right side of everything, he was involved in women's rights before the women's rights, practically. And he, was, he said, but it doesn't matter that a man is involved because I'm not taking any risks. He was, he was really a very unusual person, so he was a surprise. The whole thing was a surprise. It was also a wonderful surprise. It's a pleasant surprise because, it, to my mind, it's a very touching, very real, and very wonderful story because it's a story about a poems getting published, ultimately. Why do you think Emily Dickinson's poetry, not why do you think it's read in the 21st mm -hmm. century, why do you think it still sounds so fresh mm. in the 21st century? Yeah, it's it's amazing, really, and it's a, it's a great question, in some ways unanswerable. But as I said before, the images that she uses seem to go right into the heart, mind, and sensibility of us, and she gets to a place very quickly that most of us don't even realize exists. And I think that the willingness to be able to do that and to understand the nuances of emotion, you know, talking about death, she says it's so appalling, it exhilarates. I mean, to say things that frighten us, that unnerve us, that take away all of our pretensions and defenses, I think is quite unusual. You know, all kinds of people enjoy Dickinson, but it goes for all time, too, that there's something so amazing about what she's able to do in language. It's like Shakespeare, really, in a way, whom she admired enormously. And you always go back to him, see the plays in a slightly different way, and also think the images are just so amazing. How did he think of that? And they seem so right. And that's what I think she also is able to do. That was Brenda Wineapple. She's the author of White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson. The poems of Emily Dickinson are a selection for the NEA's literary program, The Big Read. For more information about The Big Read or to see if the program is coming to your town, go to neabigread.org. And here's a Big Read alert to folks in or near Tucson, Arizona. The city is in the middle of its Emily Dickinson Big Read, with all manner of events happening around town. 
ending with a party, appropriately enough, on Emily Dickinson's birthday, December 10th. Between now and then, you might want to check out Rocco's Restaurant, where you can get a pizza inspired by Emily Dickinson. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Simple Gifts. Arrangement by Ben Brussel. Performed by the Luna Nova Quartet. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, I talk to incoming jazz master, Jimmy Owens. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.